0: Welcome to Menopause Reimagined. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky. I'm a nutritionist for more than 16 years and I'm in menopause. I'm a menopause educator, avid menopause researcher, and I'm the co-founder of wearemorphous.com. The purpose of this show is to help empower you as you go through perimenopause and menopause so that you can take control of your health and your symptoms. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Johnny Bowden. Johnny is known as the nutrition myth buster. He's a nationally known expert on weight loss and health, and has been seen on The Dr. Oz Show, The Doctors, and every major television network. He's a best-selling author of 15 books, including Living Low Carb and The Great Cholesterol Myth. Now, here's Johnny. Welcome to the show, Johnny.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay. So you know how much I adore you. And I think you are the, well, you are, I don't think you are the guru when it comes to cholesterol. So I wanted to just talk about cholesterol and menopause, dispel some myths, talk about some natural ways that we can help to reduce, or perhaps you might say we don't need to reduce cholesterol levels. And then really define the difference between the HDL, the LDL and triglycerides. So why don't you just start with the basics of Let's Talk Cholesterol and give us a quick introduction.
1: Okay, well, this is one of those subjects, Andrea, and audience where you really can't just plunge in and start talking because the terms are being incorrectly used. The measurements are being incorrectly applied. So the whole system, it's sort of like you're trying to bail out a rowboat and you got this big hole in the middle of it. Until you patch the hole, you can't talk about getting the rowboat ready to go into the water. So let's explain what cholesterol was back in the 1950s and 60s when these When these recommendations were made, and we'll talk about why that is irrelevant now and why everybody should start as a starting point with their doctor insisting on the modern NMR particle test for cholesterol. Anything else, our discussion is useless because we're talking about how to fix measurements that don't matter. Let me give you a better example. So we have in Canada, in in California, emissions tests on our cars. We have very in strict environmental rules, and if you have a car that's over three years, you have to take it in to an, an inspection section uh, uh, station where they have these elaborate instruments that measure. The output from your car and then they give you the result and they tell you, Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones, your emissions are too high. We have to send you here to have it repaired and it's going to cost fourteen hundred bucks. And you go, oh, my God, really, do I have to? And you go, yep, because you have to, because you've got high emissions. And that's what the laws make sense. Everybody does it. First of all, you have to do it by law. And second of all, people want to be good citizens. You don't want to be driving around a toxic waste. So everybody in good faith does that. Suppose now, get in that headset and suppose an investigative reporting team like Woodward and Bernstein investigated the entire system and said, you know what? The emissions machines haven't been calibrated since 1963. They're giving us inaccurate readings. There are people who are being sent to get $1,400 repairs on their cars because they have high levels of an emission that doesn't even exist anymore. These things haven't been calibrated. There are 20,000 toxins in the environment that didn't exist in 1963. And there are some that it's testing for that don't exist anymore. You can't treat what comes out of this emissions test. You'd be furious if you had spent all that money on something that wasn't even accurate. Meanwhile, there may be people driving around with very high emissions that the stupid test didn't get. And they're polluting, and they don't want to be polluting, and they certainly don't want to have a sick car. But their test is obsolete, and they don't even know that they're walking around emitting toxic waste dump. So take it back to cholesterol. The HDL-LDL test is a piece of you-know-what. They hang on to it because insurance covers it, yeah. because they're too lazy to change their ways, because it is very, very difficult to get the medical-industrial complex to turn around. And you know this from the vitamin D arguments a year, uh, uh, 10 years ago when they said, oh, we don't need vitamin D, only 400 to prevent our bones. Well, you know how that worked out, right? It's the same thing with cholesterol. So we can't have a reasonable and important discussion about what to do about your blood cholesterol until we talk about it being correctly measured in the first place. So that said, in the beginning, back in the 50s, back in the 70s, 10 years old, they had health fairs. And they would want to educate the public. We had no Whole Foods. We had no internet, right? We just had the four food groups, milk, meat, eggs, cheese, whatever it was, um, all dictated by the dairy industry. And they would have health fairs to try to, to show people that exercise was good and to get your cholesterol measured. And it was all good. It was all well-intentioned and, and it was correct. And you would go and you get a little fingerprint. And they'd say, oh, put it on a little dot thing, a little uh, a thing that measures it. And they'd look at it and they'd go, Mrs. Jones? Your cholesterol is just fine. It's 230, because at that time, 230 was just fine. They they'd keep lowering lower and lower. It was 240 was the normal for the American Medical Association back at that time. So they'd say, oh, it's just perfect. Or they'd say, oh, looks like it's a little elevated. You should talk to your doctor about that. And they were making people aware of this thing called cholesterol. Now, why did they care about cholesterol? Why? Because when you have plaque or when you have a heart attack and when they look at the plaque, there is some cholesterol in that plaque, right? So they, in their infinite wisdom, decided that cholesterol is what we should be looking at. And the more cholesterol you have in your blood, the more likely you're going to have plaque with cholesterol in it. It sort of makes sense. And then they improved it. This, this, the, my, the microscopes got better, the techniques got better, and they said, you know, cholesterol doesn't really travel in the blood by itself. It can't, it's hydrophobic. It travels in a package, it needs a container. It's like if you wanted to get a towel to the other side of the lake, right? You put it in a boat. You wouldn't throw it in the water. It's not. It's going to get sogged up and it's not going to get where it needs to go. So cholesterol has to travel in a boat. Those boats are called lipoproteins. So when you hear of HDL, that last L is a lipoprotein. They're describing it by calling it a high-density lipoprotein, which means that that little boat is likely to sink because it's high in density. And when they call it an LDL, That last L stands for lipoprotein. It's a low-density lipoprotein. It means that the cargo is very, very light, and that will float. Okay? So we have two types of boats now. We're not just calling it cholesterol. Now, notice that the cholesterol travels in the boat. It doesn't travel in your bloodstream. So something has to happen to the boat before the cholesterol can get out, get in the bloodstream, and be part of the plaque. Remember that because what I'm going to to leave you with is that cholesterol is the passenger. The boat is what we need to worry about. Blaming cholesterol for the plaque is like blaming the firemen for the fire. They show up at the scene of the crime, but they didn't like the match. Right. So we're looking at cholesterol as a passenger in one of two different types of carriers. And what we have argued in the great cholesterol myth and what we all of us on this side of the cholesterol fence, and there are many of us now, it used to be just me and Sinatra and about I have a handful of other people, but boy, it is a growing movement that's saying, guys, stop looking at what's in the boat and look at the boat itself, because that's what crashes. Yeah, that's what crashes up against the artery wall and breaks and causes inflammation and oxidation and all of this uh, migration to the scene of the crime and all the stuff that winds up being plaque. And yes, it has cholesterol in it, but you're chasing the wrong demon. Now it gets even worse and more complicated. Those two boats that they discovered in the 60s was more like 13 of them. So there's not just LDL and HDL, there's HDL2A and HDL2B and there's LDL3 and 3A and oxidized LDL and, and, and LP little a and, and 13 different subtypes. Okay, They don't all behave the same way. So at this point, treating high cholesterol without knowing what type of LDL you have—not just if it's HDL, LDL—is it? Are they big fluffy molecules? Because big when you look under the microscope, say, oh, they come in different sizes. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, guess what? The big fluffy ones—they don't do much harm. The little dense ones—they do all the harm. Don't you want to know the size of your LDL particles?
0: So it's not thick- only like that. The key is digging deeper, deeper, and we've had these
1: tests for 20 years and these doctors will not change their ways. The evidence is mounting. This HDL, LDL test is like getting a doctor's diagnosis based on whether you're short or tall. You've got the entire human genome of 23,000 or or 30,000 genes that has been decoded, but we're going to just look at short and tall. Well, that's what's looking at good and bad cholesterol. Good and bad cholesterol is a 1960s third grade term, and it means nothing. And, and people need, I'm telling you, I feel like a politician is trying to get people to vote. You've got to vote with your mouth when you go to your doctors and insist on the right test. You're getting the wrong test. And here's the worst pers- part of it you're getting prescribed drugs based on that test. Just like in California, we would be prescribed, get a new transmission based on an emissions test that's faulty.
0: So what are we, so, okay, so because we're talking to women in perimenopause and menopause, and we always recommend going to your doctor to get a test of some sort, a blood test, what are the tests? So we want to- The new
1: cholesterol test, the N, and write it down, folks, NMR, it stands for nuclear nuclear magnetic resonance. The NMR particle test, particle is science word for LDL and HDL. You want to know how many of them there are. You don't want to know how much cholesterol they're carrying. Why do you want to know how many there are? Well, suppose you're managing a marina and you got to watch all the boats and your, your job is to make sure they don't crash, right? That's kind of like the circulatory system and the arteries and the things that are floating in it. You don't want anything to crash. You don't want anything to make a mess in the artery wall that can lead to plaque. So you are looking over here at the, you, you, the operator of the marina, are looking at all of the boats. What do you care about if you want safety? Do you care how much beer the boats have? Do you care how much towels there are in the washroom? Do you care how many? No, you care how many boats there are because it is the boats that crash into one another, not the towels in the washroom. The towels will spill out into the water, but what causes the crash is the boats. So in a cholesterol test, in a modern cholesterol test, in the cholesterol test we've had for 20 years that these doctors won't order, in those tests, guess what they tell you? How many LDLs are in the water? Because that's a predictor of heart disease.
0: So not what if your blood doctor blood. won't give you that test? You no? go.
1: You can now get them on your own. You can say, you know what, to the doctor. You can now order them. You have to look it up online. There's a million different places in different states, but you can order them online yourself. Yes, you will have to pay for it. Think of what you pay for at Starbucks. Is this not an investment in your health? This thing. And will tell you some really predictive information about what's going on with your cholesterol. But the HDL and LDL tests are not worth the, print, the paper they're printed on. If you can get a doctor who's read a study in the last 20 years that will order it for you, then it may even be covered by insurance, but they have to prescribe it. You have to understand the reason that you haven't heard of it is it costs the insurance companies more to cover it. They're very happy with their stupid little tests that they can cover, and everybody's happy. You prescribe a statin drug that's a $31 billion a year industry. They're not interested in getting better information. They're interested in keeping the wheels turning. So, and they haven't quite figured out, well, how do we change the particle? And we know how to change LDL. Well, that's really useful. But we don't know how to change the numbers that matter that you see on the test. So let's not even talk about that test. Nobody needs it.
0: You know, Johnny, tell me how you really feel.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, look, here's the, here's the thing. I'll tell you why this makes me crazy.
0: I just adore you. I love you because you're so passionate. That's why I, I, I am.
1: am and, and, and I try to pull it back. But let me tell you why. <laughs> it, start, it starts with I don't like bullying. And the medical industrial complex bullies us. Right. They bully us constantly with, the, with, with these outdated notions that we have to follow because they're the doctor that have never studied nutrition, that don't know half of the stuff that nutritionists and other health professionals know, but they talk like they're the pompous, Uh, guardians of the truth in medicine. They don't help patients heal on their own. The medical industrial complex isn't about getting you healthier. It's about sucking more dollars out of the system, getting you sick, and and then being really good at the ambulance to pick you up when you're dead. In fact, John Abramson gave this wonderful, or maybe it was Robert Lustig, gave this wonderful analogy of like, you've got a cliff, And you got all these ambulances on the bottom of the cliff waiting for people to fall off. Right. And the people fall off and the ambulances are great at picking them up and getting into the hospital. But nobody's talking about putting guardrails up there Mm. and it's not in their interest. If you're an ambulance maker and an ambulance driver and a hospital that the ambulance goes to, you're not that interested in cutting off your supply of patients. So it really is up to us to demand the right tests and to know what to do with them and to know when to ignore what your doctor says, which I'm not telling people always ignore it. I'm saying be like Reagan, trust but verify, because most of the time or many of the times in my 30 years experience doing this, doctors will give you horrible advice based on outdated information.
0: So talk about triglycerides, because I know, and I want to talk also about the ratio. So we go, we get these t- this test done. Now, are, when the results are given, are, is it something that's easy for us to interpret? Or is this something we can get from, you know, you can share with us here? Is it something um, we can get in your book?
1: Uh, yes to all. And there's something very easy we can we can do with triglycerides and that you can do at home. And I, I just want to point, I want to say one thing before leaving cholesterol. Yeah. So before I told you why the numbers mean nothing, Let's talk about what is special about menopause that changes the numbers. Because remember, I am not saying cholesterol doesn't matter. I'm saying when it's measured properly, it can give us some really good information. When it's measured the way it's being measured now, it's useless and it does more damage than good. But if you really knew your particle number and you knew the particle size, that's treatable. That's stuff that you should know about. Those things are predictive. They're just not being tested properly. So I I want to be clear that I am not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying it doesn't matter. The way we deal with it now is antiquated. That's number one. Number two, the reason, let's go back to the premises that I don't accept, which is LDL is the worst thing in the world. The reason LDL goes up in menopause is one reason and one reason only, estrogen. Estrogen tends to keep that from going up. And when you have less estrogen, it goes up. Now, does it matter? I don't know. You got to see the real test and see if that LDL is composed of the big fluffy m- particles in which I, I don't really care or the nasty little ones, in which case I do. And then it's not just the number, it's how many of those dense little dark particles that are inflamed and oxidized. How many of those do you have? Well you that uh, but estrogen you is focus. estrogen is the big modulator. And yeah. and I think yeah. the question should be really not how do we lower our cholesterol, but how do we get our estrogen in a healthy range after menopause.
0: So Johnny, so what you're saying is is that before we panic, then when we hear we have that higher level of cholesterol, we need to look under the hood to see exactly what is going on. That so is that-
1: exactly right. You, are, you should not panic with a high LDL test. I've got clients and friends who've got 300 in there. I always make them get the correct test. Now, if you get the correct test and you've got high numbers there, like, for example, I do. I had the correct test and my particle number was very, very high in the very high risk range. And the particle size was, in fact, mostly small and dense, which is very bad. Now, I'm a perfect example of why those tests are so pathetic and Usually it means people are being prescribed drugs for things they don't need to be prescribed. But in my case, it was actually the opposite. My LDL HDL was wonderful. Every conventional doctor and every you know HMO in the world would say, you're doing terrific, your heart's great. Then I get the real test, and it shows a very different picture. So you can have perfectly normal. We're talking about people who have abnormal LDL, but they're not measuring it properly. What about normal LDL that you're not measuring properly? And that was me. So now I'm looking at a particle size. You wanted about 1,000 or less. I had 2,200. You want the particles to be big and fluffy so they don't do any. Mine was small and dense, so I really did have some risks, and I even considered, and I'm not not big on statin drugs, it's a last resort for me, it's not like let's put them in the water cooler like they are in America where they just want to give them to everybody, they're very powerful medicines with lots of side effects, I don't want one unless I need it. So I found a cardiologist who's also a nutritionist. We made some changes to my diet. We added six new supplements. in addition to the 38 I was taking, a year later, the particle goes down from 2200 to 1600. It's still a little elevated. It's not what I want, but it's certainly moving down. And the big particle size went, I mean, the small particle size became the large particle size, which are much, much less um, ferocious and much less damaging. I want to know what those supplements...
0: I want to know what those supplements are, but first, let's go back to triglycerides.
1: Okay, now triglycerides I have the opposite opinion. That is a real risk factor. That is a risk factor that for some reason they don't talk about very much. Well, I actually know the reason they don't talk about it as much. So you always get a triglycerides test when you do a complete blood count. It's one of the four basic measures on any lipid profile. The old-fashioned HDL, the old-fashioned LDL, triglycerides, right? And and fasting blood glucose. Those numbers, those four numbers, basic anywhere in the world, basic lipid profile, okay? I just told you what I thought of the LDL and HDL. Those you need to look under the hood. Triglycerides, no. That triglycerides number is important. Here's what's not important, the lab values. According to the lab values, you'd be a day before a heart attack before it said abnormal in triglycerides. So they will tell you under 200 is fine, BS. They will tell you in America under 150 is fine. Not really. We want it under 100. Okay. Now, what are triglycerides? They're simply the form of fat that your body stores fat in. So you get fatty acids, which are the, the building blocks of fat, right? If you take a spoonful of coconut oil, this means fatty acids in their little structures. And, and those structures are fatty acids. And when you get three of them bound to a, to a glycerol backbone, you have a triglyceride. And 99% of the fat in your body is stored in the form of triglycerides. The, most of the fat that you eat is in the form of triglycerides. We rarely get just pure fat, uh, fatty acids. They're usually bound together in the structure called triglycerides. And your doctor measures it when they do a blood test. And you don't want it to be very high. And the reason that you rarely hear about it as much as you hear about cholesterol is they don't have the medicine to lower it. Hmm. But you want to know how to lower triglycerides overnight? How easy it is to do? It can be done in a heartbeat. In 48 hours, you can get your triglycerides down. 72 tops, a low carb diet. The Hmm. body makes triglycerides out of sugar and starch. Hmm. Stop eating it and your triglycerides plummet. 99.99% 99.99% of the time
0: wow and we're talking just so we're clear with those sugars and starches so can you give us examples so those who are watching be like okay so here's what i'm going to avoid for the next x amount of days I'm
1: sorry to say i mean anything that has sh- a lot of, has sugar in it more than a gram or two you know sugar sugar in general we all know what that is um The the tricky part is that manufacturers, because they at least in the United States, the labeling laws are you have to list the first ingredient uh, has to be the one that has the the majority. The most. They have to be listed in, in order of of weight or percentage. So the whatever the most is, right? It, yep. Like if it's a chocolate cookie, then chocolate's going to be the number one ingredient, or it usually isn't. It's the wheat and the and all the other stuff and the starch and the cookies, yes. and then the chocolate chips. But it has to be listed in order. So yep. what they do to take your eye off the ball of how much sugar is in there? There's, I think, Robert Lustig said, two hundred and thirty six different ways to describe sugar brown rice syrup, uh, I mean, you name it. And they just put a little bit of all of those in so it looks like there's just a tiny bit at the end of the ingredients list, but you add them up and it's absolutely the number one ingredient. So we have to watch for sugar. All the starches convert very quickly to sugar. That means almost every cereal, almost every bread, pasta, uh, even starches that don't have sugar in them, like rice, can convert to sugar very quickly. so we're talking about we're talking about carbohydrates. We're talking about non-vegetable carbohydrates, and we're also talking about processed foods. Processed foods are the worst offenders in our diet. It doesn't matter if they're healthy frozen foods or if you know what's in them. What matters is what's done to them. So all of that stuff uh, contributes to blood sugar, insulin, and triglycerides.
0: And how about fruit? Would fruits be on that list?
1: Uh, People vary in their responsiveness to fruits. They could be. And the fruits vary in their amount of sugar. Berries are low in sugar. They're rarely a problem. They are for some people, but not for everyone. For most people, they're not. You yeah. go up into the tropical fruits it's, high, fruits, it's a little bit higher in sugar and lower in fiber. But um, the ideal fruit would be raspberries. It's like 14 grams of carbs, of which six or seven are fiber. So you, you know, it's it's, yeah, that- just, it's a great trade-off.
0: Okay. Well, that is really good information. So basically when it comes to very important triglycerides, just to summarize, and if you want to help bring it down is to really watch your carbohydrate intake and your starch intake.
1: Correct. And now here's the second part of that because you asked about triglycerides and is there anything we can do at home without ordering a special test? And there is. There is a wonderful test. I wish that we use this test. I wish they paid as much attention to this test as they do to that stupid outdated LDL HDL test. And that is the ratio between two numbers that are on everybody's blood test in the world. Remember, I told you there's four basic measurements in, a, in, in every lipid panel. They are LDL and HDL, which we don't care about. There's triglycerides and there's blood sugar. Okay, you are going to look at the ratio between triglycerides and HDL. That's the one use HDL has. The one use you can use in this ratio, even though it's undifferentiated and we don't know what type it is. Doesn't matter. For this purposes of this ratio, we need the HDL number. So I'm gonna give you some examples. Triglycerides are 150, HDL is 30. I I know everyone's eyes glaze over when you do a when you do math. But, yeah, but the way you find yeah. a ratio is you do you divide the smaller number into the bigger number, or the in this case the HDL into the triglycerides. Yep. 90% of the time triglycerides is going to be the bigger number, 150 triglycerides. 30 HDL is a possibility, right? So if you divide 30 into 150, 30, 60, 90, 120, 150, you get a ratio of five. It's five times more triglycerides than there is HDL. Is that pretty clear? To I think to that's not hard math, right? You're dividing the HDL into the triglycerides. Almost always, you're going to get a positive number. So let's take another example. Triglycerides are 150, HDL is 50. 50 into 150 is three. Your ratio is three, okay? This ratio is one of the most predictive and important numbers you can have. Your doctor doesn't even freaking know about it. And if you doubt me, please put into Google, the triglyceride to HDL ratio, and you'll be reading for quite a long time. And if you wanna to go to PubMed, which is the National Institute of Health uh, li- of Medicine Library online, pubmed.org, uh, gov, you can put in triglyceride to HDL ratio, and you'll see the amount of, of data that exists on it. So what does that tell you? Well, if your ratio is two or less, I ain't worried about you getting a heart attack because- I thought it
0: was actually less than one, so it's under two? Yeah. Less
1: than two in the general population is generally considered pretty damn good. Okay. In optimal levels, in like perfect world levels in the biohacking community. You when like more, under one would be even better. Okay. But I can tell you that I see one under one for every 50 that I see. And mm-hmm. if I see two or under, I'm I'm pretty pleased. If okay. I see five or more, I want that person seeing their doctor tomorrow.
0: Okay, so that is predictive of heart disease.
1: It, yes, but it's even it, it's even better. It, yes, it's predictive of heart disease. It's it's a it's a big warning sign. You want it under big two, warning. and okay. if you're really going for the for the golden health. Even less. How do you get under one, by the way? Your triglycerides are less than your HDL. Your HDL is 75 and your triglycerides are like 60. That's how you get less than one because 75 into 60 is going to give you a fraction. It's going to okay. give you under one. Okay. And that's rare because that requires an LDL that's really spectacularly high. I've seen it in some women, 90, 80, you know, and their triglycerides are like 100. That's a under one. That's mm-hmm. great. It's just very rare. So- um But here's the other thing it tells you. It is a wonderful surrogate for measuring the most important metabolic plague of our time. Mm. And it's called insulin resistance. Resistance. (laughs) And when you talk about what am I passionate about, it is about getting this message to the world. We are all dying from diseases that start with insulin resistance. Insulin resistance underlies every chronic disease your audience and my audience are afraid of. Heart disease, obesity, high blood pressure, uh, um, Alzheimer's, which they're now calling type 3 diabetes, right? These are all related. And when our colleague from Canada, Jason Fong, the, the, the guru of fasting wrote his book, The Cancer Code, and traced all the different etiologies of cancer, whole chapter on insulin resistance. When Thomas Bickman wrote his brilliant book, Why We Get Sick, chapter one, insulin resistance, our book. The Great Cholesterol Myth, which I hope everybody will read. Please, it's cheap. It's on Amazon. It will, it will open your eyes to this stuff. And what we said was the thing that predicts heart disease better than anything, better than any cholesterol test, insulin resistance. You can see it 10 years earlier. Your doctor never checks for it. Here's a test that will tell you if you need to worry about it. Yeah. You take your triglycerides, you divide by your HDL.
0: And also insulin resistance. As we go into menopause and perimenopause, we become more prone to it. Now we know that, a portion, like we know, a huge proportion of the population—it's what's Something like eighty-eight percent of the population is eighty-eight
1: percent of the population
0: with insulin resistance. And we talk a lot about that at Morpheus, Insulin resistance, and it's one of my also. I mean understanding how our body is processing our sugars that we're eating i mean it's a big huge topic i've been i've talked spoken to you about it before and yeah I'm, i totally am with you in terms of being passionate okay so now that you brought up insulin resistance well, but
1: listen though i wouldn't be as passionate about it if it was some obscure disease that we couldn't treat right and, you know then i say i'm really sorry everybody let's get very spiritual about the fact that our lives are going to end because because the, there's nothing you can do about it what kills me What absolutely enrages me is that insulin resistance is treatable, preventable, and reversible with diet, exercise, and lifestyle. Shameless plug, I have a free course on my website called uh, The the Five-Day Challenge to Intermittent Fasting. It teaches you what intermittent fasting is about. Yeah. insulin, the, the fact that fasting can turn around insulin resistance is one of the main reasons. I know everybody uses for weight loss. It's great for weight loss. It's great for detoxification. You know what it's great for? Turning around insulin resistance, which by the way, may I mention, when COVID hit two years ago and everybody was, oh, what are we going to do about this? And what are the immune system thing? Started looking at what are the, and then they started to say, well, sick people get it more. They get more severe things. Well, sick how? What are those What are those comorbidities? What are those things that you don't want to have if you get COVID? Well, let's see. Pre-diabetes, that's a big one. Hypertension, that's a huge one. Diabetes. Obesity, because it gets in through the fat cells, right? Um, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Kidney, lung, and liver disease. Let's see. What do they all have in common? Every single one of them has insulin resistance as a core, basic, causal effect. Mm -hmm. Every one of them.
0: When it comes to heart disease in general and what we've heard about over the years, we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to want you to talk about Ansel Keys and I want you to get into the whole, you know, you've written the books on the great cholesterol myths, like in terms of, you know, eating fat, is it making us fat? Is eating fat contributing, is saturated fat contributing to heart disease? I know that you have told me in the past that one of the main contributors to heart disease is sugar and starches. So Absolutely. talk a little bit about that. It,
1: it, it dwarfs these other factors just dwarfs them it makes them like we don't even need to talk about those Mm. it's sort of like if you've got a lung cancer epidemic and people are smoking but they're also eating uh, a food that has a little bit of a you know, a chemical in it that hasn't really been tested. We're not really sure, but it's probably, you know, not really great and probably be better for an anti-cancer program if you took it out. But meanwhile, they're smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. You want to talk about that stupid ingredient or you want to talk about their smoking? All
0: right.
1: The smoking is driving the lung cancer epidemic, not the little chemical. It's great. We should get rid of it. It's not a good thing, but it ain't them. Let's, you know, triage a little bit. And with, with heart disease, fat Cholesterol, focus compared to sugar and starch, compared to processed food, compared to the lifestyle we live. Those are the drivers of heart disease, not fat. Not
0: and that's why in menopause, we say focus on eating your protein, those good fats, Avocado oil or olive oil, even our coconut oil. I know I'm going to link below actually to several interviews that you and I have done. The one that we did, we had a really fun interview when I talked about all the different oils and it's you know how, how it can relate to heart disease. We kind of debunked a whole bunch. A whole oh, yeah. bunch of. So I'm going to post all the links below so you can go. But watching. I want to. I'd like
1: to to make a plea for some very simple nutrition advice because I know that it, yeah, it totally. is very easy to get overwhelmed when you hear all of this and conflicting theories and
0: oh, there's so much be... conflicting information it's, here's, it's... The,
1: here's the thing folks and I beg of you to to take this to heart it is I've been doing this 32 years this is the best and most important nutrition advice I ever got from any teacher and that I've ever given to any student all over the world. You can live your life with these three words. And if you really apply it to absolutely every food decision, I know
0: what it is. Hold on. I'm going to tell you what it is because I know Johnny Bode. Go ahead.
1: Tell me. Eat
0: real food.
1: Bravo. <laughs> and it sounds so easy. It's sort of like saying, do unto others as you'd like them to do unto you. And go, oh, that's a platitude. But well, imagine if you applied that to absolutely every situation in your life.
0: Yeah, it's 100 percent. And our body knows how to process real food. Our body doesn't know how to process chemically, you know, chemically laden food. So and it's it's great advice. So and especially as we go into this phase of life, it is overwhelming. And what we did before doesn't work for us anymore. Right. So, No, we you have to.
1: And that, that's a big part of the spiritual lesson of aging uh, or, or uh, the life cycle. I'm 75. I'm going to be 76 on my next birthday. I, I, I'm not talking to you as an outsider. We have to deal with stages and with our lanes being somewhat different and our resources. I play tennis every day. I am not. Not as fast as I was when I was 30. I learned a different game. I learned to work around that. So I can be a really good doubles player, but I don't depend on my speed. I depend on placement. So we always have to adapt to a changing. We we want it to change as little. We don't want user errors in aging. We don't want the stuff we can stop. We don't want the stuff that can be prevented by just eating real food, taking the right supplements, getting sun, sleeping well. These are things in our control. We can't control genes. We can't control you know, environmental disasters, but we can control the user errors.
0: Okay. So the last topic I want to cover before we end today's interview are supplements. And you mentioned before that you took some stuff, obviously you changed your diet, but then you took some supplements to help. Now we know that women in menopause are more prone to heart disease. Tell me uh, what you, what you recommend for prevention, as well as for somebody who, um, who may have high triglycerides or that ratio might be over two or over five at this point or might have the not so great uh, LDL numbers?
1: Well, the first thing really that trumps all other advice is exactly what you and I just said earlier, which is to eat real food. That will take care of more problems than, than any other intervention. That's the first thing. Number one. The second thing is sleep and stress and managing those because they have profound hormonal effects which are even exaggerated in menopause because your hormones are already going crazy. So you don't need the going craziness of the cortisol and insulin that happens when you're not sleeping well and when you're not relaxing enough. And, and I'm sorry to say it's politically incorrect, but a huge majority of caretakers, at least in our country, are women. And they neglect them. Caretakers, men and women, neglect themselves when they take care of other people. So taking care of your sleep and taking care of your your own needs and your own real, need for relaxation and for powering systems down and taking some time for yourself, that is enormous and probably even more important for women in menopause because you, you're also dealing with the hormonal flux and you're also dealing with the caretaker issue, in many cases, not all. Um, so those three things on top of it. Now, when we get to supplements, It is such a personal and individual thing, and my entire career has been about one size doesn't fit all, so I'm not going to give you what I took for my elevated cholesterol or or, or, uh, particle number or or any of that, but I'm going to give you... 3 to 5 supplements that in my opinion yep. 99.9% of people would benefit from that this is there's not a one size fits all but there's a core yep. and Absolutely. this core and from this core you can go out in all kinds of directions i had hepatitis for 30 years i had a whole liver protocol until they finally develop that magic drug that gets that clears it for you in eight in eight uh, weeks. But prior to that, for thirty years, I was treating my own hepatitis C. My liver enzymes never went above a hundred. I never lost a day of work. I never had fatigue. I never had jaundice. Right, and I. Did it with supplements. I'm not going to recommend those to everybody. That was my liver protocol. People have heart protocols, all kinds of stuff. But this is the core. This is what everybody
0: should Call them the foundation supplements. This
1: is the foundation. And there's three to five of them. And I only alter it depending on whether somebody says, I can't take more than three pills. Okay, then you take the first three. But in my ideal world, five. Number one, vitamin D. Yep. Number one, vitamin D in the D3 form with K2 added. The best vitamin D3 formulas all have K2 in them now. I'm not going to go into why you need it. Just get a vitamin D3 plus K2 formula.
0: 100% agree. And Morphous is going to have one as well. So I'm very excited about that. Yep.
1: Okay. And and dosages, we could debate from now. I I would start with 2000 and then just see what, you know. And by the way, you don't have to guess. Get the damn test. This yes. is another test that's under 100 bucks. It's real smart to get when you get your blood test. And even mm-hmm. the doctors who haven't opened a journal in 30 years will probably have heard of the vitamin D test.
0: Yeah.
1: OH 25 test. 25.
0: I'm like a broken record about telling everybody. Okay. All right. So
1: that's vitamin D. Yeah. Magnesium. Yep. Check. I'd go as far, as high as 1,000, as low as 400, but magnesium every single day.
0: Agreed. Fish oil. I was going to say omega-3s have to be on that list.
1: Right. Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, this is a whole other discussion. You still need to take omega-3s. You need to double up on them because most of it isn't going to get converted to the ones that are already present in fish. The body has to convert that flaxseed oil, that ALA. It has to go through elongation and desaturation to get to EPA and DHA. There are some benefits for the for the, uh oil, the the omega-3 that's found in flax and hemp and chia seed and all of that stuff, there's some benefits. But the main benefits come from that conversion, and the conversion sucks in the body. So if you take more of it, you have a better shot at getting some of it converted. So yes, it has to be omega-3. And if you're not a vegan, I really strongly recommend um, for sure. The fourth and fifth, um, a multiple vitamin and mineral formula that has preferably 200 micrograms of selenium and 25 or 30 milligrams of zinc. There aren't many but there are some high-end formulas that you would have both of those and the reason i want those in there is so that you don't have to take those things separately during the immune system stuff in the last couple of years what can we take what can we take uh, obviously zinc was on everybody's list i put selenium on my list because it's a huge immune system uh, protector or or advocate or uh, something that helps sustain the immune system working properly and we don't get much selenium in the soil and unless you're eating brazil nuts you're not getting it in your diet so So either get a multiple that has 200 micrograms of selenium um, or eat a few Brazil nuts every day. So the multiple would be my fourth. And that also covers all the little areas that we might be missing manganese. Nobody thinks to take manganese, but it's important for your bones. So those are all in a good multiple. Um, The one I use, and I have zero financial interest in this company, is Life Extension. They make a a two-a-day, which I think is a very, very good formula, and it has enough selenium and zinc to make me happy. And then the fifth would be a probiotic. And that's a controversial area because we really don't know which probiotics would be right for which person. We're learning that. That is absolutely 10 years from now, they will be able to target you with a probiotic prescription, exactly the strain that you need and exactly the dosage we're not even close. So what we're doing is basically guessing. We know that the gut is one of the most important structures in our bodies for overall health. That absolutely applies to menopausal women as much as it does to everybody else. The health of the gut is where functional medicine starts. Because if the gut isn't healthy, stuff is getting into the bloodstream that doesn't belong. Your immune system is mounting an attack that weakens your immune system. It increases the likelihood of autoimmune disease. Everything starts in the gut. So the gut is populated with more non-human cells than you have human cells in your body. And they come in kind of two flavors, good and bad. The good guys are what we call probiotics. And and they live there. And you want to nurture them and take more of them. The bad guys are the ones you want to get rid of. But... Fish oil, vitamin D, magnesium, that's your trio. That's the stack. Start with that.
0: I'm going to add two more. So um, so if you don't take a multi, you want to take a multi-mineral complex, I'm a big fan in the multi-mineral complex, which have what you're talking about as well, and then tocotrienols. That's another one.
1: I like tocotrials. They're in my. They're certainly in me and Michelle take them every single day. But we take thirty-eight things, so you know, I'm, I'm trying to find what it, 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 are they going to benefit more from tocotrials or fish oil if they're doing a budget on three things. And I would go with the fish oil, but 100% agree with you on tocotrials.
0: Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a big fan of the tocotrials. Also, it helps with other things as well. Yeah. and um, with stroke, so um, so yes. got a lot of research around stroke, which I thought yeah. was interesting and heart health. Thank you so much, Johnny. This has been very educational as always. And I love having you on our show. So thank you for doing this.
1: Very welcome. And may I ask everyone to please go to my website and check out the free course on intermittent fasting. This is a very important component. We also teach a course called Meta Fasting. And at the very least, look at my book, The Great Cholesterol Myth to get some references on what we were talking about, about cholesterol, about supplements. We also spend about a third of the book on the things that are not related to diet and exercise and are related to your heart after menopause. And we go into a lot of those in detail as well on why we think They're so important. So I hope people will read the great cholesterol myth.
0: Thank you for doing what you do, Johnny. Thank you. I would say we definitely busted some myths in our conversation today. If you enjoyed my interview with Johnny, please share it because the more you share shows you care. And if you can write us a review, I would appreciate it because I'd love to know what you think about our show. As always, I appreciate you watching. And remember, you've got this. I'll see you at the next interview.